All right. Well, we are continuing our, our journey through the book of Hebrews, and we are going to be looking at the, the end of chapter 10 this morning. So if you can, turn into Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 26 through 39. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative work. May all who hear it not shrink back, but have faith and preserve their souls. Over the past few years, there have been a number of high-profile Christians who have renounced their faith. For instance, uh, Hillsong writer Marty Sampson recently posted this on Instagram. He said this, Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet, they can also be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. Or listen to the Instagram post from former pastor Joshua Harris, uh, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. This is what he had to say. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And there are more examples like these. For instance, Pastor Dave Grass, who, who left the, the faith after 40 years of being a Christian. Or there's Paul Maxwell, who, who used to write for Desiring God's website. 
Each of these men have re recently made waves throughout the church. But probably the most prominent man who renounced Christ in the past 100 years was an evangelist named Charles Templeton. You see, Templeton, he was a contemporary of Billy Graham. In fact, many believe that, that it would be he and not Billy who would have the greater impact for Christ. For he was a gifted communicator and he had a sharp intellect. And yet, seemingly out of nowhere, this man left the faith and became an atheist. He, he even tried to convince Billy to, to follow along. Here's an account of a conversation that he had with, with that famous evangelist. All our differences came to a head in a discussion which, better than anything I know, explains Billy Graham and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of our conversation, I said, But Billy, it is simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days a few thousand years ago. It has evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's a demonstrable fact. I don't accept that, Billy said. And there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, I said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Most of them, yes, he said. But that is not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, there are results. Wiser men than you and I have been arguing questions like this for centuries, and I don't have the time or the intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute. So I've decided once for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's word. But Billy, I protested, you cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. Do it and you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me. What this conversation reveals, and what I think you will find when you compare true believers in Christ and those who walk away from the faith, is that they have a different mindset when it comes to authority. Templeton trusted in the authority of his own human reason, while Billy Graham trusted in the authority of God's revelation. My guess is that if you ask those who have left the faith, if they, if they had ever truly believed in the Bible, if they are honest, they would answer no. And the reason they would answer no is, is because the, the, there, there is something within God's word that, that, that just didn't sit right with them. Either something that went against their, their, their own desires or something that went against the desires of the world around them. In other words, the God that they had once claimed to worship didn't turn out to be the God that they wanted. And thus they didn't have the fortitude to, to persevere when things got tough. 
because they never truly believed in the God of the Bible. As we look at our text for today, we will discover a God who might not sit well with what would be considered American Christianity. For we will discover a God who who doesn't act the way most Americans believe he should act. We we will discover a, a God who is a God of justice and wrath. We will discover a God who who allows heartache and suffering for the sake of spiritual growth. We will discover a God who who wants you to trade in all your worldly treasures for a treasure that you cannot see. In essence, we will discover a God who cannot be tamed. A God who does what he thinks is best and not what you think is best. And to our American minds, a God like that isn't safe. Now, now if you recall from last week, we, we, we spoke about this need to persevere. Persevere under heavy persecution. And, and our, author ta- our author talked about how we are to go about doing this. And he mentioned three things. He, three let us commands that that, that are crucial. One, let us draw near to God with a clean heart. Two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And three, let us consider how to stir up one another toward love and good works. And we talked about how these things can only be accomplished in the context of community. When we gather together as Christ's body, how we need one another, and how one another needs us. These are the how-tos of perseverance. And now today, our author won't be giving us instruction per se. Rather, he will be giving us motivation for such perseverance. The reasons why we should endure, even in the midst of our troubles. And there are three different motivators that our author will use. First, there is a a warning of God's judgment. Second, a a reminder of God's faithfulness. And third, a a promise of God's reward. And so we're going to look at each one of these, beginning with the warning. Look Look at verses 26 and 27 once again. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, are no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear this verse, it shakes me to my core. I mean, who here in this room has never sinned deliberately? I know I have. Don't we all at one time or another do this? Absolutely. In fact, I would say the the, the majority of our sins are done deliberately, are they not? But, But if this is true, if we have all sinned deliberately, then aren't we all condemned? This is where context is key. 
For, for our author isn't talking about just any sin in this passage. But there is a specific sin that he has in mind. And that is the sin of rejecting his salvation. I mean, think about what he says as a qualifier. After receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is the same kind of phrasing that we saw back in Hebrews chapter 6. Look at, look at Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted in the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. What our author is talking about here is the sin of apostasy. It is the rejecting of Christ after having a clear knowledge of both who he is and what he has done. And that is what is meant by sinning deliberately. It is this high-handed rebellion against God. It is basically saying to God, I don't care about the truth. And I don't care about your salvation. I don't care what your son did for me on the cross. I choose not to follow him. And this is why our author says there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For since they, they have rejected Jesus, what they have essentially done is reject the only true sacrifice that can satisfy the wrath of God. Think about the context of the early church. What, what was the problem that was going on? Why, why did our author write this letter to the Hebrews? Because people were leaving the faith because of persecution. They were denying Christ and going back to their Jewish roots. But in so doing... They, they had turned away from the provision that God had, had provided for them. Because they had done so, where else could they turn to find forgiveness? The blood of animals? No. For, the, for they had rejected the Son. And all that remained for them was this fearful expectation of judgment. This impending sense of doom. For they had run back to that old covenant. And that's what we've been talking about, right? How, how the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. But they had run back to that old covenant where, where, where the blood of bulls and goats have no power to take away sins. And yet it is in the context of that old covenant that our author makes one more comparison. Look, look at verses 28 through 31 says this, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now what our author is referring to here is a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 17 where Moses describes the the punishment for those who worship idols. Look at at Deuteronomy 17 verses 2 through 7. It says this. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man or woman who who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates the man, that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death, and a person shall not put, a person shall not put to death on the evidence of one witness." The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the people. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. That's hard to read. It's hard to listen to. For for these idol worshipers were, were put to death without mercy. They were to be rejected by the whole community. That's what it means to put them out of the gate. And then they were to be punished by the very hands of that community. And that punishment was death by stoning. And this, my friends, is the lesser offense. Think about that. To reject Christ is worse. What did, what did verse 29 say? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? What we see here are, are three things that this apostate does. Three horrendous acts that that this one who has rejected Jesus commits. One, he has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now to trample something underfoot is to show great disdain for the one whose image you are trampling. This is what is done to Jesus when a person rejects the gospel message. It is not simply a rejection of Jesus, but it's a true hatred for him. Two, he he has profaned the blood of the covenant. To, To profane something is to treat it with contempt or irreverence. This is how the blood of Jesus is treated when the truth is ignored. It is to reject Christ's sacrifice and the saving grace that comes with it. And finally, three, he has outraged the spirit of grace. You see, when a a person rejects God's salvation, when he rejects the Son, our author says that the Holy Spirit is outraged. 
that he is angered. In other words, the, the fury of God's wrath is kindled. And this is exactly why those who reject this greater revelation through Jesus Christ, those who reject the greater works of the Son of God, deserve a greater punishment. For they have been given a greater knowledge of God's salvation. They've been shown a, a greater mercy from heaven above. And yet they refused to believe and have instead spit on the face of Christ. Dear friends, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. If you are here today and you, and you call yourself a Christian, yet, yet you hold that term loosely, loosely because of all the pressure that is all around you, then listen to our author's words. If you like the idea of Christ and what he has to offer, but, but you're not sure if he is worth the pain and the suffering that comes with being associated with him, then take heed of this warning. If you know the truth about Jesus and his gospel message, and yet there are certain things in God's word that don't sit right with you, then let this admonition take root. If you are thinking to yourself, well, what if I just take the things about Jesus that I like, the things that the world doesn't mind, and just, just ditch all the rest? then let these terrifying truths haunt you. If you are on the verge of walking away, of rejecting Christ altogether, then let the fear of the living God consume you. Consume you until you realize that it would be foolish. Foolish to give up on your only hope of salvation. But maybe that's not who you are. Maybe you want to follow Christ no matter the cost. And yet, even though you want to follow him, you still find it hard to do so. Well, our author has two more motivators to help you persevere. A reminder of God's faithfulness and a promise of God's reward. Let's look at the reminder. Look at verses 32 through 34. But recall the, the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property." This second motivation comes to us in the form of a reminder. A reminder of how God carried these people in the past. You see, these folk they, to whom our author was writing, they, they were a people who had already been through the ringer. They had already gone through persecution before. And they had come out the other end. And so... What they were dealing with now wasn't new to them. Listen to some of the things that they went through. They had suffered four forms of persecution. The first was public reproach and affliction. 
This would have been both verbal and, and physical abuse in the public square. They, they would have been made a spectacle for all to see. And this is what is, this was meant to, to bring about shame upon them, to, to sully their names. Second, our author says that, that, that some of them were partners with those so treated. This means that even though there were, there were those who, who were never brought out to the public square, they were nonetheless treated cruelly by others simply because of their association with those who were publicly exposed. Third, our author reminds them of the compassion that they showed towards those who were imprisoned. And so we see that some of them had been arrested for their faith, while others stuck out their necks for those who had been incarcerated. What do I mean by this? I, I mean that the prison system in ancient Rome was not like our prison system today. These were not clean cells with three meals a day. No. Rather, prisons back then were dark, dank caves where no food was provided. And so if a prisoner wanted to survive, he would need friends on the outside. Those who would bring food to him on a regular basis and care for him if he got sick. Think about Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. When, when, when Jesus speaks to the sheep, he, he mentions all the things that, that they did for him without knowing it. And one of the things that he reminds them of is when he was in prison and they visited him, taking care of all of his needs. But when the sheep asked, when were you in prison that we visited you? Listen to Christ's response. Look at, look at Matthew 25, verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The context of this parable were those prisoners for Christ whose only means of survival was through the body of Christ. And yet to show this kind of compassion was a dangerous thing to do. For it would put a target right on your back. And yet the folks to whom our author was writing had taken such risks in the past. They, they stood side by side with, with those who had their freedom taken from them. And they did so because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. And yet there was a fourth way that these folks were persecuted in the past. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their own property. These, these men and women lost homes and, and businesses simply because they loved Jesus Christ. And yet they lost those things when they did it. They did it joyfully. Think about that. Suppose that tomorrow our, our, our government decides to begin an all-out assault upon Christians. Suppose they decide to take possession of your home unless you denounce Christ. Or suppose they, they shut down your business, or they, 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 they put you out of work, unless you spit on your Savior. 
what would you do? What would you do? Would you allow yourself to suffer for Christ? Would you hold firm to your beliefs? And would you do it joyfully? It's tough for us to know how we'd react, right? For, for we've never been put in that position before. And yet we've been put in other positions before, have we not? We've faced other trials for Christ. If you're not a new Christian, then you know what I've speaking of. Think back to those times in your own life where you had to stand firm for Jesus Christ, even though it meant sacrifice, even though it meant suffering. Look back and see how God had sustained you. How he had given you a courage that you didn't think you had. Remember the, the, the trials of your past and how you saw God move. He can do so again, even though it may not be pleasant at the time. You see, when, when, when you remind yourself of all that God has done in your life, of all that he has done through this church, it can become a motivator as you are going through the trials of today. Because you know that your God is faithful. Because you have seen it in the past. And so we have both a warning and now a reminder. But the question is, are those enough? Enough to help you persevere? And this leads us to our third and final motivator for perseverance. The promise of God's reward. Look at our next few verses. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This third motivator comes to us in the form of a promised reward from God. And what is that reward? A better and abiding possession. This is where that eternal perspective that can only come from God is so, so vital. For what is it that, that, that Jesus has promised to us? We can find the answer from our Lord's own words. Look at, look at the Gospel of John chapter 17 verses 1 through 3. Says this, when, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This promised reward, this abiding and lasting possession is eternal life with your King. 
You, you wonder how a person can lose everything and still be joyful? Because what is most precious to them cannot be taken away. You see, you can lose your job, but you still have Jesus. You can lose your home, but you still have Jesus. You can lose your freedom, but you still have Jesus. And you can lose your very life, but you still have Jesus. And Jesus has the power to raise you from the dead. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And this should give you both confidence and endurance. Confidence that, that Christ is true to his word. And, and so no matter what life throws at you, this reward that comes from him cannot be taken away. Endurance for a lifetime of suffering. Suffering for the sake of your king. Endurance is, is gutting it out, knowing that in the end, that the promise of God can never be taken away. That when you die, or if Christ returns, that you have gained eternal life through him. I hope that motivates you. Look Let's look back at our passage. Look at, look at the last few verses. Look at verses 37 through 39. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Our author now expresses what he believes about this church. This church to whom he was preaching. Although, they had, had, although there had been those who, who had left the faith. The ones to whom he was writing to now. They had been faithful. They had been faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. And they will do so again. They would remain true. They would remain loyal to their king. Because they had done this before. Because God had carried them before. And as they waited that for that glorious appearing, appearance of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our author had the confidence that they, they would not shrink back, but that they would remain true to the faith, true to the one who called them. And I have confidence in all of you as well. Not because of who you are, but because of who God is. Because he is a God who rescues because he is a, a God who saves. And when he does, he, he does not let go. Dear friends, as Christians, you're going to have challenges in this life. And you must be willing to identify with both Jesus and with his church. And you must do so no matter the cost. 
That's what he's called you to do. So don't shrink back. Rather have faith and preserve your soul. Take Christ's warning to heart. Remember your victories of the past and strain your eyes forward to the promise reward that is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this day as as a people who desire to remain true to the faith. And yet we know that we, we cannot do this alone. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, we, we pray for those of us who are struggling. Struggling to, to hold on. Those who have been beat down by the weapons of our enemy. We, we ask that, that this warning that you gave us would bring to us a healthy fear of you. And we pray for those of us who have in the past gone through the ringer gone through those trials and have come out the other end. We pray that you would help us to remember, remember your faithfulness so that when we see new troubles approaching, we can endure, we can have confidence. And we pray for each and every one of us in this building today that you would help us. Help us to fix our eyes upon your Son, your Son, Jesus Christ, for he truly is our eternal reward. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.